What an awesome, awesome words that song is. He is worthy. I don't know why I'm holding myself back. Maybe that's the problem. <laughs> Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 9. Have you ever been to a concert or a play, perhaps, where the lights grew dim, everything became dark, and the spotlight turned its attention to one person, the main character. What the play or the concert is all about turns your attention from everything else and focuses you on the main character or the sole performer. Well, this is kind of what's going on here in what is called the servant song. God is shining his light on the main character. The servant is at the center of the stage and everything else is becoming dark around him. He is the focus of the attention. We see in the introductory words that this is the case when we read, Behold my servant. And I think the NIV got it wrong here. (laughs) It should say behold, and that's an emphatic way of saying, Look this way. Look this way. Kind of like the trumpet blast, right? Or the roll of the drums. The orchestra announcing, behold, the servant. An example of this, same phrase that's used in a similar way, would be when, uh, when Samuel announced Saul as king. Behold your king. Or when Pilate spoke of Jesus and said, behold your king. So who is this servant that we are looking at? Who is the servant we are turning our attention to? And this passage never directly tells us who it is. In fact, there are a number of times that servant can mean different things throughout Isaiah, and it's never explicitly told who the servant is. And we have to understand with the context and what, what, what we have before us, who is the servant that's being referred to here? And some people have therefore said that the servant is Israel, or God's people within Israel. But neither of these views are really possible, because neither Israel nor the remnant within Israel, the Israel within Israel, can fit the description of what we have before us. It's impossible. They just can't. The only possible identification of the servant is ultimately Jesus Christ. He's the only one who can fit the tasks that are performed in these verses. He's the only one that fits the description that is written of in these verses. No one else could do it. Only the Messiah, Jesus. But we're not left to our imaginations here. We're not left to even good scholarly work. Because in the New Testament, it's explicitly clear, without any doubt, that Jesus is the one being referred to here. You can read that in Matthew 3, 17, and a whole list of other places where this is clearly referring to Jesus. And it says it to us, clearly. So you might wonder, how are we to look at him if we're not told who he is? How in the world are we to look at our Messiah, the Savior, who is the servant, if we're not told exactly who he is? 
And what I want us to understand is that we are to focus on him by looking at the task he is out to perform. We are to focus on him by understanding what the task is, what the qualifications of the servant are, and what is the certainty of his fulfilling the task that is ahead of him. And so I do want you to look at him, but I want you to look at the task, his qualifications, and the certainty of his fulfilling the task that is before him. And to fully understand the servant, you must see him in contrast to the idols that has been clearly the theme of the surrounding verses. There is this contrast, this showdown in chapter 41 of Isaiah, the previous, immediate previous chapter. There's been this showdown with the idols, God versus the idols. Who is the supreme God? And this contrast was never in doubt. This competition was never in doubt. It was never a question of who is the supreme God. This is merely a ploy of God to show how great he is and how insignificant the idols are. And so in verse 41, in chapter 41, verse 24, we are told, Behold, the idolater is an abomination to God, and so is the idol. Right? And so in contrast, in chapter 42, verse 1, we're told, Behold, now look at the contrast here. The servant is a delight to God. The idolater is an abomination. And so is the idol. The servant is a delight to God. See the contrast? How about chapter 41, verses 28 through 29? We're told, behold again. There are those words. The idols cannot speak or do anything good or bad. They are utterly worthless. They can't do anything at all. In contrast, chapter 42, verses 1 through 9 tells us, Behold, the servant can and will fulfill the purposes of God. And he will do it faithfully, completely, in every way. Do you see the contrast between the idols and the servant? The nations feared God, didn't they? When they saw the supremacy of God, what did they do? They feared God. And instead of running to God and finding favor with God, what they do? They built their idols to try to protect themselves because they were terrified. We saw that in chapter 41, verses 1 through 7. But God's people, when they see the supremacy of God, they don't fear. When they see the supremacy of God, when they look at the servant who's going to fulfill God's purposes, they don't fear. They run to God. They find comfort in him. They have joy. They have peace beyond comprehension because their God is going to fulfill all his promises for them, for his glory and for their good. So today I'm calling you to behold, look at the servant, look at his task, look at the one who's going to fulfill God's plans for his glory and for our good. And I wonder, maybe you are tired of looking at the cesspool of idols in this world. I hope you are. I hope you're tired of looking at this world for all the hopeless directions that the world will turn you into. Every one of them leads to death and destruction. Are we tired of the pretend beauties of this world? My singular point and my conclusion and my application for today 
is simply to turn your eyes to Jesus, to look to the servant. You know, if, if you leave today and I ask you, so what was the message about? And you can't tell me what the main point was? You are not listening. It's not my fault. <laughs> you can't miss it. Every point I will make today is to help direct you to the servant. His qualifications, the task, and the certainty of fulfilling it. And so the nations will sadly continue to look to their idols, won't they? They'll continue to look as if their idols were beautiful, as if their idols could save them and offer them protection. But we will continue to turn our eyes to the servant of God. From him comes our salvation. And that is what our lives are all about. So let's do that today. So how can you be certain that the servant will fulfill this task? Well, the answer is because God will uphold him. This literally means that God will hold him fast in his grip. God will support him. And this guarantees the success of the servant, doesn't it? And it gives us great peace and confidence in our God. What makes him qualified for the task, you might ask? Well, he is qualified because deep down in the very soul of God, he delights in his servant. The soul represents the very bottom and depth of someone's delight and care and concern. The soul is the deepest of delight, the deepest of, 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 of joy. And God finds his greatest and deepest satisfaction and delight in his son. And by the way, if you remember throughout the New Testament, this was confirmed twice, wasn't it? This is a very important thing that the Father wants us to know about his son, right? At his baptism, he says, this is my son in whom I delight, right? And then at transfiguration, he said the same thing, didn't he? In whom I delight. And it should not surprise you that God delights in his son. When you hear this, it shouldn't be a surprise to you at all. You see, the Son is the exact representation of the Father. The reflection of the Father himself, unequaled and unparalleled anywhere else. There is nothing more inherently beautiful than God himself, right? And it just means that God's delighting mechanism is properly aligned, right? For him to delight in his son means that his delighting mechanism is right and perfect and aligned in the right direction for him to delight in his son. We should be concerned if we are delighting in anything else chiefly. You see, the passions of this world have gone haywire, and that's what sin is, isn't it? At its very definition is the, is, is the, is the, is the haywire, the, the misdirected desires of our heart that do not delight properly in God. And if we are delighting chiefly in the things of this world, rather than in Christ, the perfection of beauty, and the really delightful one, then that should be a warning to us this morning. There is something wrong with us. And we should repent and turn. And God is gracious and merciful towards us, isn't he? You should have great assurance, comfort in your heart if you are delighting in God's Son, because this means you are rightly oriented in your desires. 
Perhaps the greatest evidence of a changed heart is an ever-increasing, properly aligned passions within us that delight chiefly and more so in God more every day. So here's a question for you to think about. Does God delight in you? And the answer is, if you're a believer, then yes, he does. But it's not because of your inherent delightfulness but because of his son in you. God's delight in you derives from his son that he sees in you. He delights in you because you are in his servant, I should say. And there's nothing at all detracting or belittling about this. This doesn't detract from anything about you. This actually is the best position to be in. There is no greater delight possible than to be reflecting the image of the Son. For God to delight in you because of His Son is the greatest position to be in possible. So praise God for that. The reason God chose His servant for the task is because He delights in His Son. You see, every believer is chosen, aren't they? But in a different way than Jesus is chosen. And elected, in a different manner than Jesus is chosen and elected. How so, you might ask? Well, Jesus was chosen because he is worthy, because of who he is. Jesus is handpicked before the foundation of the world by the Father because he was perfectly qualified, according to 1 Peter 1, verse 20. We are chosen, on the other hand, despite who we are, despite our unworthiness. We are not qualified for anything. He didn't choose us because of anything that was at all causing him to want to choose us because of his mercy and his grace. Ephesians 1 verse 4 explains this. Listen to this. He chose us, the us is unworthy believers, in him, meaning the worthy Christ, Before the foundation of the world. He chose us in Christ. The in Christ is significant before the foundation of the world. So what is this great task that the servant has been called to accomplish? And the great task, and don't miss this, this is so significant, is that he will bring justice to the nations. This task is clearly the key theme of verses 1 through 4. It's mentioned three different times. Justice, justice, justice. It is really the main theme. We are to understand what the task of the servant is that he is going to fulfill. And I would like to say that I don't think it means what we often think it means. I don't think justice means what we often think it means, at least in its fullness. You know, to borrow from the theologically rich movie Princess Bride, just kidding, (laughs) I don't think that word means what you think it means, right? Something like that is what it said. We often think it means merely to be fair, to have a pure society in our own definition, or some court ruling of justice. But what does justice mean? And listen to these words. To bring justice means to bring the fullness of God's right and perfect rule over all things. This is what we pray for. When we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Injustice entered the world when? Injustice entered the world when Adam and Eve sinned and rebelled against God's righteous rule. Injustice is rebelling against God's righteous rule. It is an attempt to dishonor God's name and his character. It is not a political dysfunction. It is at heart a spiritual evil, the denial of God. All the wrongs in society can be traced back to that single wrong, to that single injustice. And that is where everything else fell apart. And all the injustice that we see around us came into fullness. So what does it mean for justice to be restored? Well, it means for everything to come in their proper order. For all to come under God's rule. Justice requires, and think about this, justice requires that the honor of God's name be vindicated. Despite the news and what it says, the injustice in the world is the failure to honor God. It's the, it's the process of um, ignoring God, of not giving thanks to God. And the servant will restore honor to God. He will vindicate God's honor. Justice also requires the truth of God's word to be vindicated. The servant does not merely speak the word of God, but also fulfills the word of God. He will vindicate God's word. He will bring it to pass. Justice also requires that the people of God be vindicated as well. The servant will deliver his people from their enemy, every enemy that stands against them, and will bring them safely into his kingdom. For his name's sake. So the question, we've already answered it, but the question is, who can possibly bring perfect justice? Is it the political systems of our day? And we are so thankful, aren't we, for our political systems when they do the right thing. We praise God for them. We are so thankful that God has put them in place and we pray for them, right? But they can't bring justice. Could we work for justice? Could we bring it about by our own efforts? Well, Amos 5 verse 24 says we should seek it, right? But we can't bring it about. In fact, society throughout time has constantly been reminding us and telling us that we cannot fix the injustice in this world. No matter how hard we try, we always fail. We can't do it. And it's a continual testimony to the truthfulness of God's word. That we have a problem and we can't fix it. This perfect justice is what the only servant of God came to bring about. He came to make things right, to bring the world under his rule. Jesus, when he comes, he literally brings heaven to earth. God's rule to us. And the way he establishes justice is through the cross. His justice is dependent on the cross. If he is to have mercy on sinners and honor God's name at the same time, he must deal properly with sin. Otherwise, God would be a God who would send everyone to hell if he were to be a just and righteous God. But because of the cross, he is able to have mercy and remain just at the same time. So the cross is really about the vindication of the honor of God's name. First and foremost, in his honoring of his name in being able to save sinners and to display his mercy and his grace to us so that he will be praised and honored for who he is. 
And what does that mean for us? It means that we experience the goodness of God's grace. So the gospel is God dealing with sin in a way that upholds his honor while having mercy on sinners. There is coming a future day when all wrong will be righted, won't it? We wait for that day. It says that the coastlands are waiting for that day, right? Right? His people will be saved. His name will be vindicated. And those who rejected the gospel will pay the eternal debt of their own sins that will never be satisfied. But all in all, everything will be made right. So turn to God before it's too late. Look to Jesus who alone can save you from your sins. So what is the manner in which you'll accomplish this great task? Well, he'll accomplish justice in a quiet and gentle manner rather than a loud, crushing manner like all the rulers who have come before and will come afterwards. The manner in which the servant brings justice is intended to contrast completely with rulers of the day such as Cyrus, right? The way he brings justice is not going to be the normal way that ruthless military conquerors do it. Imagine Cyrus, okay? He's having a class on how to be a conqueror, all right? And so in this class, you are sitting, okay? Or, or the, 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 someone is sitting in this class, and he says, the first lesson we're going to learn today is to conquer, you must smash people. You must be louder than everyone else. You must crush the weak and trample on people. And then you raise your hand and say, well, I am going to do things a little differently. And he would say, that's impossible. You can't do it that way. But the method the servant will use to accomplish this task will be unprecedented. And therefore, what we see here are only negative terms. He will not do it this way. He will not do it this way. No wonder no one was prepared to recognize him. No wonder Jesus said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. Otherwise, we would fight. For that is how kingdoms of this world are built, aren't they? So what is the manner in which the servant is going to establish his perfect justice? Well, he won't raise his voice, verse 2. Now, this does not mean that Jesus will not raise his voice. (laughs) Just so you know. If you think that, you're missing the point. In John 7, verse 37, we read, Jesus stood and cried out, right? That's not the point. The point is that he came in a quiet manner, in a quiet attitude, in a quiet demeanor, in quietness rather than abrasiveness. For instance, Jesus heals someone on the Sabbath, right, in Mark 3 and Matthew chapter 12, and the healing was followed by this confrontation that the Pharisees have with themselves, And what does Jesus do? He retires to pray. We read this in Mark 3. He goes and prays. And then he tells his disciples in Matthew 12, don't tell anybody who I am. That is not the way of the world. He's not touting his own horn, parading his resume, dominating through his vocal tone. He's not shouting down others, not calling attention to himself. 
Ever try to argue with someone who uses their tone as a weapon? Man, that is impossible to do. And it is awful. Nor will he crush or be harsh on the weak and the broken. According to verse 3. A bruised reed is somewhat something that has been structurally damaged or cracked. A faintly burning wick is a, a, a little flickering light that's pretty much out. It's smoldering. There's nothing left there. Useless for any purpose. And both are meant to depict broken and helpless and useless humanity because of their sin. And the, 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 the rulers of the day would trample on such people. They would be easy fodder to stand on and, and lift themselves up upon and magnify their greatness with. They would trample on them. But the servant, on the other hand, will not be so dismissive to those who appear useless and beyond repair and worn out. He will rather be gentle and kind and gracious to them. He will not be overbearing on the broken and useless. He will rather repair them and fan into flames the flicker that is in their hearts and in their lives. He cares for the brokenhearted. He cares for those who are broken because of their sin. It is the self-righteous he condemns and the Pharisee that he sharply rebukes because they are not broken. They don't realize their condition. Jesus said in Matthew that he came to all who are weary and heavy laden. Oh, he said, come to me, I should say, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus was saying, I came for the broken. I came for those who realize that they are helpless without me. I came for those who realize that I am what they need and that their sin has separated them from me. And those who are broken and weary, those are the people that the gospel is for. Those are the people who are saved and Jesus only shows mercy and grace to such people. Jesus demonstrates the spiritual reality with the physical healing of many people who are useless on the day. The paralyzed man, the woman who was bleeding, the widow whose son died. He demonstrates his spiritual concern and what he came to do through such actions. If you are broken because of your sin, then these words are comfort for you. These words should be so comforting for you. The crushed under the weight of sin don't need to fear that God is going to crush them, but that God is going to have mercy to them. You will meet a Savior when you come to Him who is gracious and kind. Nor will He fail to accomplish His task due to discouragement nor falter under the weight of His mission. In verse 4. Notice what many of us do under the weight of burdens in our lives. We often crumple, don't we? we? We buckle under the weight of the tasks that are assigned to us. And it's not saying here that Jesus will not suffer. Jesus was certainly not a stranger to suffering and to the difficulties and the struggles of life. But it's saying here that he would not buckle that he would not fail to accomplish the task that was set out before him. He would not fail because of the pressures that were upon him or be immobilized or deterred or give up. He would accomplish what is before him. He would be faithful to do that. 
The amazing statement we find here, that the ends of the earth are waiting for his law. I think, I think what this means is that it confirms that his accomplishing of his task of bringing God's rule to the earth is without doubt. Is without doubt. It says, and the coastlands wait for his law. The coastlands refers to the distant nations here. Jew and Gentile throughout the whole world. They are pictured here as some throughout the whole world are waiting for the servant to establish God's justice in his rule. And the servant will not grow weary in doing so. They're acknowledging that the servant is going to accomplish God's purposes. Nothing is in doubt here. And the faith here is a dependent, confident waiting. The faithful wait because God is going to fulfill his purposes. So the question is, how will he fulfill this great task? And I intentionally skipped out a phrase in these verses. The answer is because God will put his spirit upon him. It says, I have put my spirit upon him. You see, when Jesus condescended, right? He came to this earth. He came to us. He never ceased to be God, did he? Yet he set aside the privileges that were his. And he operated within the limits of the flesh. He chose to operate within the limitations of the flesh. He added to his divine nature, you might say, the human nature. It's called addition through subtraction. And the source of his strength to fulfill his tasks came from the Spirit of God. And this is why we see Jesus often retreating to prayer, doesn't he? He often retreated to prayer. He's dependent on the Father. This is why Jesus knew the Word of God. He knew it very well. He was a man of the Word. The human race is never impressed with such strength, is it? It is often preoccupied with its own ideas of power. But we know in John 6, verse 33, that the Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. We know, according to Zechariah 4, verse 6, that it's not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. And if Jesus needed strength that came from the Spirit of God, how much more do we? And we have it available, don't we? God has given it to us. So how can you be certain that he will fulfill this task? Are we in danger of being presumptuous here? Are we in danger of being overly confident that God's going to fulfill the task? Well, I want you to notice that verses 5 through 9 directly focus on our addressed to the servant here. God is confirming to the servant that he will fulfill the task that he has been assigned. And so you can be certain that the task will be fulfilled because of the greatness of the character of the one he was calling the servant. Look at verse 5. Thus says God, the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. Do you think the creator of the world is able to accomplish the task that he is calling the servant to do? Imagine God, and this is what you're supposed to do with this language here. Imagine God stretching out the heavens like a tent. That is incredible. Imagine God spreading out the earth like a metal worker would flatten a piece of metal. Pounding the metal and flattening it. 
Think of God just for a second as the one who gives life and breath to all things and keeps everything in existence. He preserves life continually and always, holding it up in existence. Is the Creator able to accomplish even the most difficult of plans? And there's certainly no more difficult plan than what we're looking at here, is there? He who stands outside of creation does whatever he pleases. Nothing is too hard for him. We can be confident that he will fully fulfill everything he plans to do. You can be certain that the servant will fulfill the task because God has called him in righteousness. You could say that everything about the call here is in righteousness, isn't it? I mean, it was the right person, at the right place, at the right time, for the right purpose. But I want us to go a little deeper than that. I, wanna, I want us to ask, what does it mean for God to be righteous? And I want to hear what one person said is the answer to that. God's righteousness is based on his commitment to always uphold the worth of his glory no matter what. God's righteousness is based on his commitment to always uphold the worth of his glory no matter what. You could therefore say that his mission is a righteous mission because he was sent to uphold the honor of God's name. You could say that what he accomplished was a righteous work because on the cross he upheld the glory of God. On the cross he upheld the worth and honor of God supremely in a greater way than could ever otherwise be lifted up and exalted. He did this through showing mercy to undeserving sinners while at the same time honoring and upholding the honor of his name. That is where we see the righteousness of God, is his upholding his honor. You can be certain that the servant will fulfill his task because God promises to, make his, to take his servant by the hand and keep him. You could say that the father held his hand his whole life through the temptations in the wilderness, through the garden right before his death when he cried tears of blood. And you see it in his response, not my will but yours be done. That is complete submission to the father. That is faithfulness. What will he hold his hand and keep him to do? Well, he will give him for a covenant for the people through opening the eyes of the blind and bringing out captives from the prison of sin. What do people need more than to be in a covenant relationship with God? What do we need more than being in a right relationship with God where the promises of God are directed towards us? And the answer is there's nothing we need more. We are outside of any good thing if we are outside a covenant with God. We have no salvation if we are outside of a covenant relationship with God. And it is true that the servant came as the messenger of the covenant, but that's not what it says here, is it? It said here, here that he is the covenant. He is not merely the messenger. He is the covenant itself. That is an amazing thought, by the way. 
He is the means through which people will come into a covenant relationship with the Father. In Him are all the covenant blessings found. Every single one of them. And in Him is every covenant blessing enjoined, enjoyed. Jesus said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Matthew 26, 28. To say that Jesus is the covenant is to say what Jesus said in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Amen. And what we see here is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham that he would be a blessing to the nations. Israel failed to be a blessing to the nations. But God was faithful. He was faithful. And through him, Abraham was a blessing to the nation and is a blessing to the nation and continues to be so. He perfectly fulfilled the task. And there is no greater blessing than the blessing we receive through Jesus Christ. The effect of this covenant can be described as a light to the people in darkness, opening of the blind eyes and freeing people from the dungeon of darkness of sin. You were in darkness because of your sin. You were blind. You were in prison. We think, we, we thought we were wise. We thought we were free. We thought we could finally do what we want. All we were is really creative in our sinfulness, in our rebellion. That's all we really were. We were blind and in bondage to our sin. We thought we were in a good place until our eyes were open to see the light. And only then did we understand that we were in prison. Only then could we see the terrible condition that we were in. When your eyes were opened, you were able to see and feel that you were in a dungeon and that your sin was not freedom, but rather enslaving. And Christ came to undo the destructive and enslaving effects of sin. To restore us to the freedom of what it means to be children of God so that we would not only love God and desire God and see Him as delightful, but that we would serve Him and be shaped into His image. And in that sense, we do bring justice to this world, don't we? You can be certain that he will fulfill his task because God's ultimate purpose is to glorify himself. In verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. If there is one most basic thing about God that you need to know about him, what is it? And the most basic thing you need to know about God is this. What undergirds all that God does at the very basis of the heart of all that God is is that he is out for his glory and he will not share his glory with anyone else. This is what it means to be God 101A, <laughs> the first class. What it means to be God is to pursue your glory above all things. And this is why God attacks the idols. This is why God attacks idolatry because they are an attempt to attack the glory and honor of God and take it for themselves. Idols are anything we erect in the place of God, anything we try to take the place of God. And God must discredit every idol if he is to receive the honor that's due his name. And so from the appearance of things, when you look at this, you might think that the Babylonians have won, that the idols of this world have finally conquered. And that God is no different than the idols that are around them. His people are in captivity. We were in captivity to our sin. Have the idols won? Has the enemy defeated God? 
And knowing this, knowing what God is all about, explains to us what God is doing here. Why God is calling attention to his servant makes sense in light of God's purpose to glorify himself. He is demonstrating that he is the supreme God through saving his people. He is showing his glory that he is not the impotent idols of this world. That he is not like all the things of this world that claim to be able to save you. That he is indeed the true God. And that's why he saves a people. That's why he delivered his people from Babylon. That's why he delivers his people from sin. He wants to show, to demonstrate to the world that he is able to free his captives from their sin. And therefore that he is not like these idols. That he is the only true supreme God of the universe. That is why God is acting this way. That's why God left his people in bondage. His name and glory are at stake in saving you. What an awesome thought. His reputation is at stake in saving you, people of God. God's glory and my goodness are not at odds. Isn't that awesome? For God to pursue his glory is for God to do me good. And therefore, there's nothing more comforting for God's people than hearing and knowing God's greatness of his glory and his commitment to it. When we hear of God's glory and his greatness and his commitment to it, we experience comfort because we know that God is going to save us just as much as he cares about his honor. His commitment to his honor is the degree of his commitment to saving his people. Praise God. So if God told you ahead of time that he was, what was going to happen in the future, and those things came to pass, then you can be certain anything new, he says, that will come about in the future will also come to pass as well. Am I right? So we can be certain, as you heard Isaiah prophesy about the new things that were coming about, you could be certain that they would come about. And that's what we read in verse 9. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and the new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. The former things were the things of Cyrus. God says this ruler is going to come, and he's going to conquer. I tell you these things so that you know when they happen that I am the supreme God. I alone am in charge of history. I say how things are going to come about because I'm directing history to fulfill my purposes. The new things that God says will come about are the work of his servant. In chapter 42, verses 1 through 9. And they are confirmed by the fulfillment of the former things. They will come to pass. They give credibility to the words that God says about the future. You see, the triumph of Cyrus and the greater triumph of the servant, both of them glorify the Lord as being the supreme Lord of history and discredit all idolatrous competition. And this is good news for us, his church. So my question for you is this as we close. Where are you going to look today? Where are you going to turn your attention today? Are you going to turn to the good news offered by the news stations all around us? How about your bank account? Are you going to look at your bank account for good news today? How about the health of your family? Is that your good news today? Or how about the entertainment that is out there? Are you going to find your good news by looking at the entertainment that is out there? Or are you going to look to the good news of God's servant? 
the only one who establishes justice and bring God's perfect rule to us. Isaiah 45 verse 22 says this, Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Psalm 121 verse 1 says, Lift up, I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Oh, that God would open our eyes. Until our eyes are opened, until we start delighting in the servant, we will not be able to be the people of God that we are called to be. So my prayer for you, my desire for you, is look at the servant. This week, look, stare, be consumed with the servant, and pray, beg God, open my eyes, Help me to see the dungeon I am in. Open my eyes. Heal my blindness so that I might delight in you and rejoice in my Savior. And then and only then will Southbridge know and hear from us the good news of our God. We don't need new strategies. We don't need new special applications today. We need to look at the servant and delight in him. Let's pray. Dear Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you that we don't need to be clever this morning. Lord, forgive me for thinking that I need to come up with something especially clever and especially insightful today. Lord, I don't need to come up with anything new. Lord, this is not new, but Lord, it is new to us. We need it renewed in our minds. Lord, we need you to open our eyes, heal our hearts, Lord, give us taste buds. Lord, realign our desires. Lord, we confess, I confess, Lord, that I am often looking to the idols of this world, God, even good things, Lord, and finding my salvation in them. Lord, forgive me, forgive us. But Lord, we know, Lord, that this is not a cosmic downer, Lord. You are our cosmic joy giver. You are where true delight and true salvation is found. So, O oh Lord, may we be the people who find the greatest joy today. May we be the people who express joy to the greatest extent because we know where salvation is found, because we have seen and beheld the servant of God. So, Lord, do this work in us. Lord, deliver us from our dungeon. Deliver us from the darkness. May we not delight in those things. May we delight in you. And Lord, I just thank you. I thank you for the confidence. I thank you for what you did in bringing salvation to us. I thank you for what you're going to do, Lord, in bringing the fullness of what you've already accomplished, Lord, in that you are coming again. And we look forward to that day. We wait for you, Jesus. We long for that day. And our eyes are on you as people straining with our necks upward. We are looking to you because you are our Savior. And there's no one else who can save. And Lord, if there's anyone else who is not saved, if there's anyone here who finds themselves in the darkness, whose eyes are being opened by you, I pray that they would cry out to you right now. That they would see that they are in a terrible place. And that there is great hope in the servant who has come to deliver us from our dungeon and our darkness. Thank you for the light of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.